like to invite any children ages kindergarten through second grade to, to exit to my right by the piano for uh, the lesson the Lord has for you today. For the rest of you, good morning. Good morning. I hope you're having a good morning this morning. Um, Someone from the praise team left a little mirror up here, um, and I'm, I'm glad you did, because I was thinking to myself as I was coming up here what my hair looked like, <laughs> and I can fix that. For those of you listening on the radio, they laugh because I have rock star full mane of hair uh, without any uh, receding at all. So I won't ask who this belongs to, but it's, it's here for you. If you're visiting with us, I'm glad you're here. Um, You're coming in uh, as we've been looking through Philippians. Our pastor, Pastor Jeremy, is on sabbatical. uh, And uh, his sabbatical is winding down quite quickly. Uh, He's very excited uh, to get back here uh, and to serve us. And we're looking forward to that. He's going to be talking about the Gospel of Luke and, and walking through that wonderful book with us. But we have business yet to do. We're not done yet. We have Philippians passages still to cover. We're in uh, week seven of a nine-week series. So if this is your first Sunday joining us uh, with Philippians, you may be a little apprehensive, thinking, great, walking in the middle of a sermon series. Don't worry, you actually came at a very good Sunday to start with. For the past five weeks, we've been really looking at one topic. We've been looking at a section of passages regarding appropriate conduct of a person committed to the gospel. And that, that journey has taken us through discussions of suffering, discussions of unity, discussions of obedience, humility, and ultimately concluding the last time with the importance of being a light to the dark world, to the crooked and depraved generation. So that was primarily what we've been looking at, and as we should, I believe it's the heart of the epistle. But we closed that section last time. So we're starting a new section today. So it's a good time to sort of jump in and start with us. Today we're going to be looking and listening to Paul. To Paul as he is very personal. To Paul as he is very confessional. We're going to hear Paul talk about his own life. What it was like before he became a Christian, and what it was like after he became a Christian. We're going to hear Paul talk about why his life has meaning, the meaning of his life as he is encouraging the Philippians, as he has been encouraging the Philippians from day one to let their love abound more and more in knowledge and deep insight. He's using his own life as an example as a paradigm for them to look at so they will understand the beauty of knowing Christ. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1163. Philippians chapter 3. Our main focus will actually be verses 4 through 8, but I want to start with verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I had to start with verse 1. Because as has been sort of our practice in this study, I want to ground what we're looking at in context. I want to make sure we understand what Paul is saying and why he is saying it. And it's interesting, just who are these dogs? Who are these mutilators of the flesh? I mean, that's quite a statement. And why does Paul, why does Paul call the Philippians, who are Gentiles, why does Paul call the Philippians the circumcision. I mean, the circumcision was very much an identifier of Judaism. So why is Paul saying that to the Gentiles? What is going on here? And briefly, I just want to talk about how this issue, this issue that Paul is, is bringing up was a major conflict in the early church. The issue was how Jewish does a follower of Christ have to be? That was a major conflict in the early church. It's the reason for the Jerusalem Council that we read in Acts. It's the issue that undergirds everything in Galatians. It points, its, it points up in all kinds of letters, including here. The question is, how Jewish did a follower of Jesus the Messiah have to be? You see, there were certain men, these dogs as Paul calls them. There were certain men who argued that even if you claim Jesus as your Messiah, you still, in order to be saved, in order to be a member of God's people, you still have to belong to Israel. You still have to be an Israelite. They would argue you still have to be circumcised. You still have to follow certain dietary laws. You still have to follow certain ritual purities. You still have to do certain ordinances. This was a major issue. There were those who said that if you wanted to belong to the people of God, you must belong to Israel defined ethnically and defined by a following of the law. And these men would point to certain Old Testament texts to justify this. Now, you could see where this would really chafe Paul. You see, for Paul, to be saved, to be a people of God, to be 
your destiny short in heaven was by faith alone in Christ Jesus. By faith alone. Yet there were these men who were arguing it wasn't by faith alone. That you could confess Jesus as Messiah, but you also must do these other things. You also must be a part of the nation of Israel. This was a major conflict in the early church. And these people hounded Paul and went to Paul's churches. And obviously there's no love lost on Paul's part. He calls them dogs. I mean, how often do you call someone a dog? He calls them a mutilator of flesh. In fact, in Galatians, Galatians, these people who are saying you have to be circumcised, which means you have to belong to the nation of Israel, he says, why don't they go the whole distance and castrate themselves? I mean, have you ever said that? I mean, my goodness. You get the feeling Paul doesn't have a PR team. You know? He doesn't have the handlers that our leaders of today have. He just sort of brings it. So here are these men who boast that they are more confident of their salvation because they belong to the nation of Israel or they follow certain ordinances, that they have greater certainty that they belong to the people of God. And so Paul is concerned. Paul is concerned that these certain men will gain a foothold in Philippi. And he decides to play their game a little bit. He decides to join in with them. He decides to say, okay, you argue that pedigree and orthodoxy is necessary for certainty. Well, why don't we look at my life? Paul decides, you want to play that game? I know it from the inside. He starts with verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Classic Paul. Isn't it? A little bit of an edge to him. Classic Paul. I've got more. We're going to play your game. You have your standard. You have your standard of what is required. Let's just see how my previous life would have stacked up. And then he begins. Circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision is a requirement? Fine. I was circumcised, Paul says. I was circumcised on the right day in the right way. Circumcision is a requirement to stand boldly before God, to be a nation of Israel? Check. I got it. Of the people of Israel, I'm not even like those Gentiles who have to be circumcised later on. I can trace my family lineage through all of Israel of the people of Israel. You say for someone to stand before God boldly, they have to belong ethnically to Israel? Okay. Check. I got that. Not only do I have that, what does Paul say? Of the tribe of Benjamin. That's right, Benjamin. Son of the favorite wife of Jacob. Only one born in the land of promise. Tribe of Benjamin. The tribe that saw the first king of Israel. Tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that Moses says is the love of the Lord. Tribe of Benjamin, the tribe where the holy city itself was. 
You say you've got to belong to the nation of Israel. You say you have to be circumcised on the eighth day. Guess what? I got all that, and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You want to play that game? I can play that game. You can hear Paul almost taunting them. He moves on. Circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You see, since Alexander the Great, when he conquered the Mediterranean world, the Greek culture just spread. And one of the problems was that there were many Hebrew, many Jewish people that were assimilating their culture with the Greek culture. They were becoming Hellenized. And there were some who were remaining strong in their own traditions. And Paul's saying, look, not only is my family of the highest, the highest lineage, we never wavered. We have always stayed pure. We never became like the Greeks. We lived in Tarsus, and yet we stayed true. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Pedigree is important to stand before God. You argue that it's not in faith alone, but that one must be born. One must be associated with a certain group. One must be associated with the people of Israel. Pedigree? Check. But it's not just pedigree, right? These certain men were arguing. It's not just who you're associated with. It's not just your family lineage. It's also your orthodoxy. How are you putting your religion into practice? Are you meriting the right to remain with the people of God? Pedigree is critical and so is orthodoxy. You have to continue to obey the law. You have to continue to earn your place in the people of Israel. So Paul says, okay, let's see how I do on that. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. That says a lot about Paul in relation to the law. You see, a Pharisee, a Pharisee was wholly committed to following the law, not just the written law found in Scripture, but the traditions, the oral tradition of the law. A Pharisee gave his whole being and his whole life to observing the law and to making sure others observed the law as well. And failure to do so for a Pharisee meant grave consequences. There were other groups of Jews who did not have such a loyalty to the law, but not Paul. Paul says, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, as for loyalty to God, as for zeal persecuting the church. For Paul, before he became a Christian, his devotion to God, he thought, was demonstrated by his persecution of the church. You see, the church was worshiping a man who hung on a tree, which for Paul, any man that hangs on a tree must be cursed. So this group was heretical. Not only were they heretical in Paul's mind, but they were letting Gentiles in. I mean, come on. They were even being worse than heretical 
They were letting Gentiles in. They were letting Gentiles in without requiring them to be circumcised. And for the pre-Christian Paul, there was no way a good Pharisee with a good pedigree could stand for that. So as proof, as his loyalty to the faith, as proof, as his loyalty to the religion, he was persecuting the church. You want to play this game about pedigree? You want to play this game about orthodoxy? Look at me. I was a Pharisee. And I persecuted the church. And then he just brings it home. I mean, what a statement next. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I mean, that's a boast. As for legalistic righteousness, Paul says, before he became a Christian, faultless. Now, that's not the same as sinless, and we should point that out. Paul's not saying he used to believe he was sinless. Remember, in the law, there was atonement. There was a manner for dealing with sin. But what Paul is talking about is Paul is talking about those practices which these certain men say are requirements to stand boldly before God. These circumcision, dietary laws, ritual purities, separation from Gentiles, that whole practice. Paul says in that whole frame of things, he was faultless. I mean, this is the guy, this is the guy that if you were like, if anyone's going to heaven, it's that guy. I mean, that's Paul. In this framework, that's Paul. I mean, Paul was their MVP. He was their Peyton Manning. I started to use Tom Brady. But then I thought, I'm talking about pre-Christian Paul. And it somehow didn't seem, seem right. So I thought Peyton Manning fit that a little bit more. But you can feel it. I mean, you get the sense how Paul viewed himself, how Paul thought of this standard that these certain men are saying, that you have to have a certain lineage, that you have to be connected to a certain people, and you have to do certain things in order to be certain of your salvation. Paul says, look at me. Check, 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 check. And I think it's important we sort of understand how Paul was before he became a Christian. Because a lot of people, a lot of so-called experts, say that people become Christians because they need a crutch. Because something's going on in their life that they can't handle. So they find sort of a rescue in the faith. They need a crutch. Or, some experts say, people become Christians because they need a social network. They find it in a church. They become a Christian. Satisfies that need. Or perhaps, they say, people become Christians because, well, they just can't forgive themselves about something. And they can find an excuse to forgive themselves in the church. Does that sound like how Paul viewed himself before he became a Christian? Does Paul sound like someone needing a social network? Does the pre-Christian Paul sound like someone who needed a crutch? Does the pre-Christian Paul sound like someone who just couldn't forgive himself or something? No. The pre-Christian Paul and Paul's mind had it all. Had it all. And in his mind, had it all for what he thought was for God. 
Dysfunctional people aren't the people that become Christian. There's a reason people become a Christian. And it's the same reason that Paul did. Something happened to Paul. Something happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. There was Paul going to Damascus. He had heard about this church, this group that was worshiping this crucified Messiah that had the audacity to bring Gentiles in and he was doing what he thought any good Pharisee should do. He was going to snuff it. There he was on the road to Damascus when something happened to Paul. Something happened that changed his viewpoints and his values completely. Something happened to Paul. He met our Lord. And when you encounter Christ, it all changes. Everything flips. I don't care where you're coming from. I don't care what you are or who you are. When you encounter Christ, everything flips. And it flipped for Paul. Everything that he held as necessary, everything that he held as a requirement in order to be a member of the people of God, when he encountered Christ, it flipped. Listen to his words. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Notice he doesn't say, I consider nothing. He doesn't call his past confidences nothing. He calls them a loss. We're dealing with accounting language here. You have your ledger. On the gain side is Christ. On the loss side is everything else. It's not merely nothing. It's a negative. It's a loss. Paul's telling us that what he held confidence in actually got in the way. That had he pursued down that path he was still on, had Christ never intervened in his life, Paul would not be a child of God. It's a loss. It's a negative. Now this is 2,000 years ago, and I I was dealing with, how does this work for us? I mean, we don't have the same conflict of how Jewish does one have to be in order to be a Christian. The early church settled that conflict. So what does this mean for us? What is Paul's life? Because Paul presents his life as a paradigm here. He's presenting it to the Philippian church as an example. What does that mean for us? Well, you're not born a Christian. Just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you are. Pastor Jeremy likes to say, God has no grandchildren, only children. So if you're in a Christian family, you are blessed that you're in a Christian family, that you're in a family that loves the Lord. But if you're in a Christian family, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. By faith, you are a Christian. Paul would also want us to know that nationality doesn't mean you're a Christian. 
Being an American doesn't mean you're a Christian. A lot of people confuse that. In fact, that's always been an issue for the church. Since Constantine, when you had countries that supposedly committed themselves to Christian morals, its citizens seem to think that makes them a Christian. It doesn't. By faith, you are a Christian. And we as a church, we as a church should really make sure we are not intermingling duty to country and duty to Christ as the same thing. Being an American doesn't mean you're a Christian. I think Paul's life also tells us belonging to certain groups doesn't mean you're a Christian. Being a Republican doesn't mean you're a Christian. Being a Democrat doesn't mean you're a Christian. Belonging to any institution doesn't mean you are a Christian. By faith, you are a Christian. Belonging to religious institutions doesn't mean you're a Christian. This is the part that really scares me and saddens me. There are many, many people who, because they belong to a religious institution, because they belong to a church are walking delusional, are walking thinking they're Christian. By faith, you are a Christian. A couple friends of mine, we were talking about a few weeks ago, there was a book out. Um, it was about evangelical Protestants that are becoming Roman Catholic. And one of the main reasons was certitude. People were saying they felt more certain of their salvation if they're Catholic. Because the Roman Catholic Church says quite boldly that if you belong to this church, you belong as a citizen of heaven. And if you're outside of this church, you risk being outside of the citizenry of heaven. And so there are these people who are leaving the evangelical, evangelical Protestant faith and are going to the Roman Catholic Church because they feel it gives them some more certitude. And I understand that. I understand how that can be tempting. But friends, certainty is not found in a multinational institution. Certainty is not found by your name on a membership roll. Certainty is found in faith in Jesus Christ. So I think Paul would tell us it's not who you associate with. He would also tell us it's not what you do. Doing more good deeds than bad deeds does not get you into heaven. A lot of people hold on to that. Doing more good deeds than bad deeds does not get, in, get you into heaven. You'll hear people say, well, what about Gandhi? Look at a man like Gandhi. A man who gave himself completely, completely for the people of India. Surely, surely God would not keep such a man out of heaven. Well, I do not know the condition of Gandhi's soul when he died. But I know there is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to the Father. And that is not what you do. But that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Are good deeds important? Of course. We just spent five weeks talking about 
appropriate conduct in a manner worthy of the gospel. But good deeds does not get you into heaven. Even if those good deeds are supposedly done in the name of God. Paul thought he was doing good deeds in the name of God. He was persecuting the church. By faith in Christ alone, one of the more sobering passages of Scripture is found in Matthew. And I'd like you to hear these words. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is our Lord talking. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Good deeds do not get you into heaven. But there is good news. There is good news. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. There is good news that while all the other things you could put confidence in, or as Paul calls them, rubbish, while all those other things that you must push away, there is good news that you might know Christ, that you might gain Christ. Look how, listen to Paul's words, they're so personal. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to this surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know that's one of the few times Paul ever uses the phrase, my Lord? He usually uses our Lord. But here, as he is very personal, as he is very confessional, he talks about this surpassing Greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The Lord of heaven was pleased, was pleased to be your personal Lord and Savior. The Lord of heaven was pleased to be your personal Lord and Savior. He is our all in all. He is our righteousness. He is our Lord. He is our salvation. He is our victory over death. He is our Lord. He is our victory over sin. He is our life. He is our Lord. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the way. He is our Lord. So what do we do with this? Well, if you're here today and you feel the Lord talking to you, you know God is talking to your spirit. You know that you are counting on other things. You know you are counting on your good deeds. This is you. Realize 
those for what they are, rubbish, and invite the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. It isn't intellectual knowledge. As we talked about before, when Paul talks about knowing Christ, it's that Old Testament language, that knowing that is a relationship, a wonderful relationship that's over time, that's continual, that's caring, that's committed, that's consuming. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. If you don't know Christ, don't even hear another word I say. Pray right now. Ask the Lord to be your personal Savior. For the rest of us, I have to ask myself, and I hope you ask yourselves, does my life, does my life convey the value I place on Christ? Does my language convey the value I place on Christ? Do my relationships convey the value I place on Christ? Do my actions convey? Do what I strive for? Am I striving for achievements? Am I striving for... For people to know me? Am I striving to belong to a certain group? Am I striving to brag about who my family is? Or am I striving to know Christ? Let's walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's walk so our lives show that we value Christ over all things. Our Lord asked the question, and I'll close with this. What good is it for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul?